From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shuck. Coming up on the ballot November 4th in Tennessee is Amendment 1, and that is going to be the topic today. It's about restricting uh, reproductive decision-making for women or letting the legislators make that decision. You know, and it's often thought that uh, Christians are automatically against abortion at all points of life, that it's just an obvious thing. If you're a Christian, you must be against abortion. Well, not all Christians are. Um, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, is actually a pro-choice denomination. This is their statement, by the way, on Amendment 1. The Presbyterian Health, Education, and Welfare Association affirms the policy of the PCUSA that itself affirms the right of women to access a broad range of reproductive health options. It is our position that Tennessee Amendment 1 would diminish, if not destroy, those options and that right for the women of Tennessee. We're going to talk today about Amendment 1 from a faith perspective. My guest is Ruth Taylor Reed. Ruth calls herself a concerned grandmother, and she's here to talk about Amendment 1, which is on the Tennessee ballot. Uh, when will they be voting on that? November 4th. November 4th. And uh, talking about that, as, as well as issues of reproductive rights and Christian faith, and welcome, Ruth, to Religion for Life. Thank you for asking me. Tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. Well, first of all, I think like any mother, I'm going to say I am the proud mother of two daughters and the proud grandmother of two granddaughters. I have a degree in women's studies. Anything that's relative to women's issues or women's causes is a primary interest to me. I don't think the Creator gave me all these girls for no good reason. <laughs> and how long have you been in the Tri-Cities area? Oh, I moved here in second grade, and so that's way more fingers than either of us have to count. A so, long time. So you've been here for, for some time. And, and you are uh, concerned in speaking out about uh, Amendment 1. Tell us what is Amendment 1. Amendment 1 um, addresses the issue of abortion if you look at it short-sightedly. Okay. But long-term, it's of concern because I see that there is no value placed in the life of women regardless of the circumstances that lead them to make this decision. And I say decision and not choice because I think there's a, a distinctive difference between the two words. A choice is something that we take a little more lightheartedly. We get up, we, we choose to brush our teeth in the morning, we choose what time to get up in the morning. But this is a serious decision that women don't make lightly. And a lot of times, a great deal of prayer and a great deal of concern and time are given to this decision. Yeah, and, and maybe you have, you have the text of Amendment 1 uh, there. I do. It reads just like this. Nothing in this Constitution secures or protects a right to abortion or requires the funding of an abortion. The people retain the right through their elected state representatives and state senators to enact, amend, or repeal statutes regarding abortion, including, now this is the catchy part, okay. including but not limited to circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or when necessary to save the life of the mother. So this language, if passed, would allow state legislatures to put restrictions on uh, when women can receive an abortion. Exactly, regardless of the circumstances that led them there. Now my faith, in the basic tenets of my faith, I see no other choice 
but to give women respect and freedom. Those are the basic tenets of faith, are they not? Mm -hmm. And not allowing women to have the respect or the decency or the time to make this choice decision on their own means that they place no value on either their knowledge, their circumstances, or their bodies. So the decision is being moved from the individual woman to the legislators. To the legislators. And may I say that with the exception of one in this state, no other lawmaker in the state has a medical degree. That's important to note because these are men, for the most part, making decisions they are not qualified to make, either medically or ethically. So why is this issue important for you? It's important to me on several levels. I have two daughters. One is 29 and one is 20. And I remember my oldest daughter telling me, Mom, you told me the truth, but you didn't tell me enough. And I remember her saying that to me after she had become pregnant. And I was shocked because I had to go out in the yard and think, she's got something here. I missed a lot of chances. I missed a lot of chances to be direct, to be more truthful, to be more, more forthcoming. Because in my um, experience, sex, sex education was one word. Don't. No. <laughs> Don't. Don't. Uh -huh. It's a sin. Don't. Well, I don't think we can get by with that anymore as parents or as concerned citizens. We can't look at these young people or older people and say, just don't, and expect them to do that. We've been trying to legislate good behavior as defined by lawmakers for the entire history of this country to no good. It's not going to work. What this would do is make it eventually, eventually, because the entire nation is watching Tennessee with this particular amendment. Is that right? Is it, it is. It, it's it's become public? a focal point. So what's going to happen is one by one by one, the barriers are going to be torn down so that unqualified people are going to make these decisions for my daughters and my granddaughters. For me, that's appalling. In fact, most of the time it just makes me angry that this sort of archaic legislation is still happening in 2014. These are the same issues we were addressing when I was growing up in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 60s. Well, since the beginning of time, really, but I can't believe that we're still addressing these particular things. It's just beyond comprehension some days. Why are we still addressing these things? I mean, we ask that rhetorically, but there are political and social reasons why abortion um, or restricting reproductive choice and reproductive decision-making for women uh, are in the public eye? Well, I think for me, this has been a journey, as I said mm -hmm. before. When I began entering the conversation of reproductive justice, a lot of these issues resonated with me because I'm a woman and because I'm a girl mom and because I'm a girl grandmother. And I think that they become more and more important. They've always been relevant but they become more and more important because we need to shed light on the fact that no value is given to these young women or to women at all. We need to stop. We need to stop and think. We need to take away the shame, and we need to protect our women mm -hmm. of faith and women who don't identify as women of faith. We need to protect them. We haven't done a very good job of that. Um, I asked a state lawmaker recently. Why? Why 
Are you interested in this particular issue? And why is there only light shed from the female standpoint? Why is it okay for the young men, if they choose to date young, win, young men, for my granddaughter's dates to go to the grocery store or to a gas station and buy condoms, but we cause them grief if they want a plan B pill or a birth control pill? And he looked at me and said, I never really thought of that before. And I believed him. I believed he was sincere. He's never had to think about that before. But we need to change these conversations. We need to educate other people of faith and other people who don't identify. Because the wording of this amendment is confusing at best. It's ambiguous, but it is intentional. This went through at least three drafts. It began in 2010. And they did this intentionally. So you think this is intentionally ambiguous? I do. I how, do. How is that intentionally? Well, I think that if I think if you pay close attention to the best of our ability, what they want us to do is give all of the power to the state representatives and the senators, regardless of any circumstance. Mm -hmm. Now, I've spoken to my state legislator and a couple of others, and I think that as concerned citizens, we need to do that. I think that there are several polls out now, like the Vanderbilt poll, that says they are not willing to support, 72% were not willing in this state to support this amendment. And some of those people identified as being what they consider pro-life. Now, I've never been real excited about that term. Mm -hmm. Because pro-life to me means that there is equal value placed on the mother as well as the embryo. Right. And this amendment doesn't reflect that. It doesn't reflect that at all. Even in the case of rape. And I had a state legislator say to me, but the baby should not pay for the sins of the father. Cause yeah. for thought, isn't it? It, it is. That's, that is a strange statement to make. I thought so. Especially using the word sins. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought so, too. Um, but my concern is that once the baby is here, I see nothing to support the baby or the mother. It doesn't seem to be too female-friendly in this state. What I, what my earlier question was kind of about that there's a political and social movement toward this. I mean, abortion really wasn't on anyone's radar until kind of the movement of the re religious right, wasn't it? In Correct. The, in the late 70s or Correct. early 80s? Uh-huh. That is true. And I think that it was brought into our subconsciousness so that we could mull it around for a little while and go, hmm, then we get into discussions and often heated arguments. When does life begin? When does life begin? And my legislator asked that of me, and my answer is, I don't have a medical degree. That's not a conversation I'm real comfortable joining in. And so he shared with me that he believed that it began at conception, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not qualified to make that argument. And so I don't answer that one in, at a particular moment, mm -hmm. scientific moment. I don't have a scientific mind. I do know this. I do know that I think that our creator created us all for a specific purpose. And in order for us to get our joy-filled life, we need to be able to live up to that purpose and that plan. It's our job to wake up every morning and go, okay, what's your plan for me today? What do I need to do? And making one bad choice should not negate the possibility of joy the rest of your life. Because most sociological studies will show you that if a young woman becomes pregnant early, she's not in all likelihood going to get a high school degree, never mind a college degree, and be able to earn a living. And she certainly can't afford childcare, can she? 
Ruth Taylor Reed is my guest. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, uh, speaking about uh, Amendment One uh, coming before the Tennessee voting public uh, this November, and uh, you comment this issue as a person of faith. Um, you say that you've come from a fundamental background. What, what do you mean by that? A very fundamental, traditional background. I went to a Christian school, and later I returned to that Christian school as a fundraiser to tell the story, spin the yarn, and collect um, monies for that institution. And I had a great childhood. Um, Parents graduated from missionary school. Can't get any more fundamental than that. Mm. Um, Graduated from missionary school, and we moved to Canada, and they they served as home missionaries there, and then we moved here, and they began to serve as home missionaries here. But I, I, I think that because I began to feel at an early age that, Being a girl sort of limited my chances and my choices. There were categories you couldn't compete in. You certainly couldn't compete in the preaching category. My goodness, that certainly didn't happen. You couldn't do Bible stories in a lot of places or serve as president of your class even because girls just didn't have slots like that. So I began to feel the resentment growing sort of early, but I didn't always have the terminology for it. But it didn't occur to me that twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday night we weren't going to go to church. That was just a way of life. Mm -hmm. You didn't call it in sick. You know, my daddy was a deacon. My mom is a Bible teacher and counselor. That was just the way we lived. So I went to, like I said, the Christian school, and I went back there later. And I just, I cannot anymore justify the continual struggle, the continual struggle for justice for those who have not had voices for so long. And I don't want my granddaughters to grow up in that world. They're eight and five years old. Mm-hmm. Eight and five years old. We still have a chance to make a difference. My children are 20 and 29. We still have a chance to make a difference for their futures. That's important to me. So your faith has evolved then? It has evolved. Um, m- my mom likes to say I sort of ran it through a Google translator and made it my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I just, I, you know, I say this a lot, but I just don't find anything holy anymore when we close our eyes and we're silent with human suffering. And I don't see anything religious anymore about placing judgment and condemnation on women because of the choices they've made. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Statistics show us in this nation, one in three women make the decision to terminate a pregnancy. So that to me means that when I go to worship on Sunday mornings, I have not had this procedure myself. So if I look to my left or I look to my right, one of them probably has. Mm -hmm. And I have been amazed when I've been speaking lately of the stories that women come up to me and say, you are so right. Thank you. Because these decisions, as you mentioned, are not just frivolous choices as those might want to uh, perhaps, perhaps proponents of this amendment might want to say, or I, what I often hear that they're just they're just making a choice. Whereas you mentioned that these are heartfelt, painful decisions uh, that that are made very seriously. They are, and uh, you know I've said this as well before too. I always like the conversations in the Bible with Jesus and the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees were like some people's least favorite people. They were legalistic, not known for their mercy or their grace. They're just concerned with the law. So I found this verse where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and it's in Matthew 23, 4. He says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That verse bothered me a great deal because I have some statistics here. In the Mm -hmm. state of Tennessee, 
This is according to the United Health Foundation. In 2013, 13.6% of Tennesseans had no health care coverage. 26.3% of children under 18 are living in poverty. Don't those numbers bother a great deal of us? They should. Absolutely. Yeah. They should. We rank 41st for low birth weight, a condition that often is the result of inadequate clinical care in the prenatal period. And we are 47th in the nation for infant mortality. Those would be uh, issues of concern for people of faith, shouldn't they? They just, should be. Just change those things around. They should be. You know that verse in Isaiah chapter 1 that says, learn to do good, seek justice. Mm -hmm. That's a directive I think that we must all look at and we must all pray about and we must all consider. Do justice. The rest of the verse says, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I think if we're going to say that this is um, God's word, that we need to obey all of it. And sometimes certain omissions are, are made so that we can practice the continuum that has always been. And that's the one of, there are certain key words I really don't feel comfortable using, but you can't get away from the term hierarchy, can you? Mm -hmm. There's a certain um, pyramid, and it's always been certain people on top, and certain people on the bottom, and I find that disturbing. I do see some changes, and changes for the good, but only because some of us are saying we've had enough, and we want better for the generations to follow. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the people who will be affected if this law is passed. Well, not only is every woman in this state going to be affected, so is every man who loves a woman. Mm -hmm. um, any father of a daughter any husband of a wife, any uncle of a niece, everyone is affected. I can't see that anyone gets away from it. And I can't see why we would want to push women back to where we were, where lives were lost. Because put, if we pass Amendment 1, that doesn't mean the procedure is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. It means unsafe procedures are going to happen. Right. And my personal experience is when I took someone I loved to a clinic in this state and I saw a protester with a Bible verse on a sign and an angry face near my car window saying, we were going to go to hell if this happened. That was a pivotal moment for me because I decided nobody Nobody should be allowed to hold those keys to hell. Nobody should on right. this earth. It was traumatic for me, and it was traumatic for the young woman having the procedure. And he was still there when we left. It was frightening. I mean, many of the women who will come, we can't even almost call them women, girls, who have had uh, um, experiences of, of, of rape or, or incest would be affected by this. It is terrifying because in this state, women between the ages of 15 and 19 in the year 2012, there were more than 13,000 pregnancies. Now, as I said, I'm a mom who, as a parent, thinks their child is grown up enough on any level to parent at 15. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are violent episodes. Sometimes those are family episodes. Sometimes those are um, results of impulsive choices, which is what youth do. 
they should be allowed to continue to live the life they were created to live. Well, what do you, how do you respond to uh, Christians who with, have their placards and who say that abortion is murder and that, uh, um, you know, uh, and, and cite scripture? Cite. Well, I, th- I think that we can all find a verse, can't we, to yeah. support what we want to mm-hmm. support. I think we can all do that. What we sometimes fail to do, though, is study the intent behind the verses. And I think that we can't continue to call ourselves Christians and continue to omit love and grace and the modeling that Jesus gave us. Because we don't see any anger from Jesus under these circumstances. We know he got mad at the temple, but it wasn't anything about a personal choice or sexuality, was it? It was about making money. At the wrong time. Uh-huh. Hiding the behind wrong. the temple. Doing, uh-huh. doing, your, doing your business and then hiding behind the temple for cover. Exactly. But never once, when women were brought before him, did he show that sort of attitude or that lack of compassion. We have stripped compassion a lot of times from the faith that we say we believe in. Yeah. What I find sometimes troubling, too, or, or puzzling is, is why so many women want more restrictive access. Well, I, you know, it's interesting you would say that because I spoke at a church a few weeks ago uh-huh. and a woman came up to me and she didn't introduce herself. So I don't know what her name was. I can tell you exactly what she was wearing because it was my favorite color purple sweater. And she came up to me and she said, Ruth, I want to thank you for this. My husband is like three pews over there. Do you see? He's the tall guy standing over there. He wouldn't like it if I said this, uh-huh. but thank you for what you do. Okay. That's that hierarchy, that patriarchy. It is, and, and I can relate to that. I lived under those circumstances for several years myself. There was one prevalent, dominant opinion, and that was the one that mattered. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I think that I am, well, I'm certain that I am finding that as I talk and women tell their stories, there are a lot more stories out there than people can imagine. And they are sweet, compassionate, often sad stories of women who made this decision and other decisions as well. But some of them were fortunate enough to have compassionate family who supported them or friends. Some have yet to even tell close friends or family. I think that if we were all laid bare, we would all have a story to tell that might surprise family members. This just happens to be a secret well-kept often. You know, it's often thought of that uh, these social issue questions, whether they be reproductive choice or um, same-sex marriage or whatever it is, are are often very religiously um, defined. That if you're Christian, you obviously have this position. And if you have this other position, you're obviously not Christian. And so that's why it was um, that one of the reasons I have you on the program is that you are a Christian who is uh, uh, wishes for women to have reproductive decisions. I do. I think that we can call for nothing less. Mm -hmm. I think that we are mandated by Jesus to, uh, like I said, not remove the compassion and to allow a woman to live up to her fullest capability. And a lot of times, choices in sexuality and reproduction don't allow women to do that. But then we're back to the question that I asked my legislator. Why are we only, um, uh, targeting is not another word I like, but I haven't found a better one. Why Mm -hmm. are we only targeting one half of the sexual equation anyway? Why do we do that? And why do we, why have we always done it? And why do we continue to do that? Right. 
exactly. It's it's uh, it's it's just uh, against women. It is against women, and those are really not catchphrases that invite conversation. Mm-hmm. And I value the conversation because I have been very lucky and very blessed that I haven't suffered a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. Not in um, the volunteer work that I do, not in um, speaking engagements. And I know that my day is going to come, but maybe it doesn't happen because finally people can look and go, there's a grandma with a story. There's a mom with a story. There's a woman with a story. Maybe I do need to look around and take care of my neighbor, at the very least by listening. Yeah, and, and you've gone around and, and done uh, several presentations at congregations. I know you came in and presented at, at my congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, what others, uh, what's that experience been like? For me, it's my comfort zone because I grew up in the church and because I had a faith-based education. It's a comfort zone for me, but it's also an enjoyable process for me because I enjoy watching um, different forms of worship. I only saw one for so many years Mm -hmm. that I am excited. And I feel worship happening at moments that I least expect them because I'm used to walking into a sanctuary and going, okay, on page 188, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And we'll only sing the first, second, and fifth because, (laughs) you know, that's how I grew up. And not knowing sometimes when I visit a church what song that is. And the lyrics that I've been missing and the inspiration that um, pastors shed on subjects that I used to have a low threshold of boredom for, sad to say, Mm -hmm. because I pretty much knew what sentence was going to come next. It is a unique experience for me, and I will always um, feel compelled to listen to women's stories afterwards. the best part. It's the very best part. We uh, just have about a minute left. Is there a final word that you'd like to offer folks for uh, regarding um, Amendment 1 or um, reproductive choice or equal rights? Well, since I feel that we're at the um, hair on fire stage for Amendment 1, yeah. I would encourage everyone, look it up, mm-hmm. read it, pay attention to it, talk about it, and decide. Pray about it because we all know that the right resolution comes when you have peace. And when you pray until you have peace, I think you'll see what they were trying to do with this amendment. Ruth Taylor-Reed has been my guest on Religion for Life, talking about Amendment 1, which will come before Tennessee voters on uh, November 4th. Thank you so much for your work and for being with me today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about this program, including links to podcasts, at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well. <laughs>